Thank you. Well, this is our first time that we're meeting in person. It's wonderful to see all of you. Uh, now I have to say that the timing for the meeting wasn't exactly ideal with the uh, curve for the cases, but we'll get into that in a little bit. So you see in front of us the agenda where we'll review, as we have in the prior meetings, the COVID-19 metrics. What we will add, because this is the May meeting of the year, is a presentation of county health data from one of the data sources that we use. And then we'll move on to the old business, which is the minutes from our last meeting, and then a review and discussion of the draft rules procedure, uh, and then a vote on that. And that's what we've got for the agenda. All right. So um, as I had just made reference to, uh, and as you probably have experienced, we have more people who are reporting uh, that they are either symptomatic with or have tested positive for COVID. We have, uh, I think since our last meeting, uh, or at our last meeting, we discussed the two types of metrics that the CDC is now using. So we have the community level here, and we have the community transmission. I'll start with this one. The community transmission is what we looked at for the longest time, which is the rate of um, our population, so the percent of the population that's uh, testing positive. And you see here for Maryland that uh, Frederick County is in the high. And way back when, when it was the high transmission, it was recommended that everyone wear face coverings uh, when they were going to be around others. And now um, the CDC's recommendation for high is for persons in healthcare settings to wear face coverings. But um, what we talked about at the last meeting was the newer of the metrics that's being used, and it's a combination of that community transmission, which is the rate of transmission, combined with the hospital situation. Because if we remember, we started all of this way back when, when we were concerned that the infection, the SARS-CoV-2 virus, would cause people to become ill and enter the hospital that the hospital system wouldn't be able to keep up with it. So we talked about that interest in flattening the curve. So this newer metric, the one that's called community level, and it's very confusing because community level and community transmission sounds very much the same, but community level is taking into account not only that community transmission, but also the hospital experience. And so Frederick County, as of uh, uh, this past week, has now gone from the low to the medium. Now, what you'll see on the CDC's website right now, though, is that Frederick County still looks low, but we're really at medium. The CDC updates its data once a week and uh, their data lags by two days. So even though last week on Thursday, our rate from our local calculation and our epidemiologists, which we're fortunate to have, um, uh, was able to let us know that we have actually transferred data-wise to the next category, which is the medium. And the recommendation at the medium level is to stay up to date with the COVID-19 vaccines and get tested if you have symptoms. So this is a bigger picture now. If you look at um, the community level for the whole U.S. and the community transmission, you'll see that 
the rate of COVID transmission throughout the country, so the red color is high, you'll see it looks like at least half the country is in high. But when we come over to look at the community level, which again is the community transmission and looking at the hospital situation, it's really only the northeast part of, this, uh, of the United States that is at the high level. And we have about as many jurisdictions in the high and the medium level uh, and then the majority still in the U.S. are at the low level. So people have asked about, well, what about the variants? And the variants do make a difference. And what we see here in the growing uh, pink is that BA.2.12.1 uh, and, uh, or the BA.2 is the pink. And then we see this uh, salmon color, the uh, sort of the sun of that is uh, responsible for an increasing percent. And why the variants make a difference is that each variant has its own characteristics. Some spread more easily, some potentially are more or less um, uh, causing more or less uh, serious illness. And it seems as though this one that's increasing here is uh, more easily transmissible. Um, when we look at, and this is, these are the graphs that you've seen all along here. So first we look at the percent positive rate. If you remember in the very beginning, that's all that we had. We looked at the tests out of the people who are being tested, what percent are they that's positive? And um, that only told us a little bit of the picture. We also like to know what was the rate or uh, what percent of the population is testing positive. And you see way back when, in the very beginning, we had a, you see, this is the one place where our two curves really varied. And that's because so few people were able to be tested because there were few uh, of the supplies available for people to be tested early on that we had a low case rate relative to the uh, percent positivity. But when we come across here and we look at This is wave one, wave two, three, four. Well, let's see, one, two, three, four, five. And we see where we are here, and Frederick County is in the black. The state average is in green. Once again, we are higher than the state average. Um, and uh, our percent positivity has remained higher. It could be that we still have relatively more testing that is occurring through I would say the system or testing that is occurring through specimens that get sent to a laboratory, because I think probably all of us here by now, I wouldn't be surprised if in each of your households you've used your own um, at-home test uh, kit. And um, those at-home test kits, very few people are reporting their results. So we actually have many more people I think I'm pretty safe in saying many more people have tested positive than are being reported. But likewise, we also don't know how many people are testing and they're negative. So we don't have a, you know, this percent positive now just tells us percent positive out of those who have had their testing done uh, either in a healthcare provider's office or um, that have been done, well, I guess also at one of the uh, pharmacies that does it. Uh, or at the hospital, so um, because they're the ones that are reporting results. People who do the at-home tests 
uh, we don't have that information. So likewise, when we move to the case rate, this is where I suspect that the case rate is a lot higher because, again, this case rate is based just on the uh, tests that have been reported by laboratories or healthcare provider offices. So Maryland does have a mechanism for persons to self-report their tests. However, um, those self-reports would not be officially added to these uh, numbers that are used for calculating the rate. Um, and again, we don't have a good denominator, so the state is sticking with uh, the information that they have a good uh, denominator so they know out of how many tests performed, how many are positive, how many are negative. Uh, but what I do need to point out, though, is when we look at the case rate, and so this, you know, the, the scale of this, because the case rate went so high in January that it, it sort of dis, uh, blunts what otherwise would look like impressive waves here. But you see our case rate now is getting quite close to where we were two Januaries ago when we thought it was bad then. But, oh, okay, but, so again, so we were concerned about the transmission of this virus and the potential for it to uh, cause uh, serious illness and death. And so then that leads into the next slide here, which is where we look at the numbers of deaths. So this is Frederick County residents by month. And as I mentioned before, January was our deadliest month yet. And you see that we uh, had a steady decrease in the uh, numbers by month, and that's persisting to now. Um, that is different from the pattern, if I could show you the overlay pattern from prior waves, where in prior waves we already started to see an increase in deaths um, during the wave and during the the case rate increase, and we're not seeing that same pattern during this wave, and that was a consistent pattern with the prior waves. Um, uh, so that that suggests that this is different from the prior waves. More on that later. One of the ways that it's different is when we take a look at the congregate care facilities that are required to report, and we see that... Um, when we look at last year and this year, we see very different situations in terms of the numbers of cases and the deaths. Uh, it's a very dramatic difference. When we look at the schools, we see that we have many more schools that have official outbreak designations uh, this month compared to the last time that we met. I think it's over 200 students impacted by the current outbreaks. And again, these are based on, um, in this case, um, uh, this is Frederick County Public Schools uh, reporting, and uh, that might differ from the state's official um, awareness of the laboratory confirmed test results. Uh, this could include, I can't speak for FCPS to say how many of these might be self-report tests, not just the lab confirmed. And FCPS maintains its own dashboard. You can see where there's been a dramatic increase. This is the most recent week. 
uh, these bars are weeks, and you can see how it's a dramatic increase in the green, which is students, and the yellow, which is staff. So you see it's going up, and it's higher than uh, the prior wave so far this school year. So on the vaccination front, there continue to be people coming uh, to be vaccinated to the clinics operated by the health department and others out there who are coming for their first doses of vaccine. And we're also seeing people come in for their first booster and their second boosters. So when we look at um, the children who are age five and above, 84% have been fully vaccinated. And our highest is ages 65 plus at 95% for an average of all ages of 79%. Then when we look at the boosters, so fully vaccinated to remind you that that term is referring to persons who have uh, received the number, the recommended number of doses for whichever vaccine type they were vaccinated with. So for Pfizer, two doses, um, and and same with Moderna. So now in the blue box here, it's looking at the boosters, persons with the first booster. And we see a dramatic drop off there in the percent of individuals, uh, percent of Frederick County residents who have had a first booster. So we have persons 65 and older, they have the highest percent and they're almost at 80% have had their first booster. Um, but it's a pretty significant difference when we look at the persons age 12 uh, and older. So a lot and some of that is due to questions about, well, what's a booster? When do I get a booster? Who should get a booster? So I have a couple slides on that to hopefully uh, help to answer some of those questions. So who should get a booster? A booster is recommended for anyone who's age five and older. Um, and then the second booster question is for persons who are 50 and older and persons who are age 12 and older, but who have a, an immune system that doesn't work so well. And this is uh, specific then for the type of uh, vaccine that somebody had started or had been fully vaccinated with. So when can you get your first booster? Well, if you've had Pfizer and Moderna uh, within five months after your second dose in, in that initial series, you're eligible for a booster. And as a reminder, Pfizer is the product that's available for persons who are five and older, and Moderna is the product that's available for persons 18 and older. Now, second boosters, so the difference between this one and this one is that this is about the second boosters. And the second boosters, it's going to make it a little confusing, but persons are eligible for the second booster four months after their first booster. So first booster you're eligible in five months after completing your primary series or your initial vaccine series. And second boosters, it's four months. And second boosters are recommended for persons who are 50 and older. And if you had Pfizer, it uh, has emergency use authorization for persons who are 12 and older whose immune systems don't work well. And for Moderna, it's 50 uh, years and older or persons who are 18 and older whose immune systems don't work so well. 
So I'd like to remind everybody, the health department, we're still operating vaccine clinics. We're still seeing a lot of interest from folks uh, coming out to our community locations. We're so excited that the Frederick County Public Libraries uh, is continuing to welcome us and welcome folks coming into the libraries to be vaccinated. And you can see the schedule there in addition to our location at Himes Avenue. Uh, so now moving into the hospitalizations and Dr. Weissar from Frederick Health Hospital regrets not being able to be here tonight, but she did provide me with some information and uh, I will review that. So this is what is on the Frederick County website here. This should be familiar to everybody. So the uh, total numbers of beds occupied by persons who have tested positive is in blue. And then the ICU beds is in this uh, lower one, which is a little bit purplish. Uh, and so what you see is we've continued for the ICU to have to really be hovering around that zero, uh, which is different from where we had been for uh, prior peaks. Um, and uh, let's see. And then this is the Frederick Health Hospital's website uh, information that they have displayed. And it includes what their total weekly numbers of hospitalizations for persons who have tested positive for COVID. And you see they've been hovering uh, here uh, 11 to 14 cases. They're reporting no persons in the ICU right now. And um, and so I'm going to switch over here to um, what I have from Dr. Weishar. So looking at um, uh, regarding ICU beds. So again, we started all of these extra protective measures out of concern about overwhelming the healthcare system and to flatten the curve or slow the rate of people entering into the healthcare system. So the report from Frederick Health is that they're able to scale the ICU, that's the intensive care unit usage, based upon the need, and as of May 23rd, they have zero ICU COVID-19 patients in the ICU. Uh, they have stayed below 10 ICU COVID-19 positive patients since early to mid-March, and have had zero to one COVID-19 ICU patients over the last several weeks. So mind you, that's during the period where we started to see that big increase in the case rate, and that's the reported cases case rate. Um, so this is a much different experience from what we've seen with the start of other surges in the case rate in that we have um, uh, very minimal ICU uh, bed occupancy. So um, now there, I, I do need to add that um, when looking at COVID-19 inpatients in the past, uh, the hospital was testing everybody, and now the, t the hospital is currently only testing symptomatic patients or and patients undergoing a surgical procedure or they're hospitalized in certain units of the hospital. Therefore, they have less incidental diagnosis of COVID due to a change in that procedure. So we have had discussions in the past about how many people are in the hospital who are there for COVID versus there with COVID. And now that they have modified their procedures to test persons who report symptoms and then in some of their other units, they're finding fewer people who are testing positive and reported no symptoms and were unaware. 
um, suggesting that more of their hospitalizations right now are related to their COVID status. Uh, she reported that the bulk of the COVID admissions have been managed in the regular, uh, what are called the med surge units, rather than needing to go to the ICU, and that indicates a lower level of severity in general. And the majority of the patients hospitalized for COVID uh, were reported to be unvaccinated. Uh, let's see, for testing, uh, yes, okay. So for testing, uh, Frederick Health, they, do, they demobilized the large white treatment tent that everyone was familiar with, and that was located outside their Frederick Health Village location. And that was primarily due to a dramatic decrease in the testing volumes as at-home tests became more readily available. Um, however, the hospital is still offering, or I say the hospital, Frederick Health, is still offering testing services inside the village uh, and signage and staff are on hand to direct individuals who require a test. Uh, testing numbers continue to remain low given the home testing, uh, but they're still seeing members of the community uh, ask about it and come in for that service. Likewise, vaccine clinics, Frederick Health continues to offer a robust schedule of community vaccine clinics throughout the county, including Frederick Health's Community Health Works, vaccine clinics that have uh, proven effective and popular, as well as the mobile vaccine clinic of the hospital, or Frederick Health. Uh, she said that uh, Frederick Health will continue to offer vaccine clinics at the Frederick Health Village location until the end of June. And finally, treatment, because that's uh, been of uh, great interest and something that we want to remind folks that treatment is out there. She said that the mainstay of treatment at Frederick Health continues to be steroids and the remdesivir, along with supportive care. So that's for persons who are in the hospital. So making sure that they're hydrated, oxygen, controlling their symptoms, uh, and that the COVID-19 therapies are available without any supply issues. And the mainstay of outpatient treatment is Paxlovid, which is widely available but underutilized. I do have a slide on that. I uh, do want to uh, highlight that uh, there is treatment available. And part of the reason why we are seeing a reduction in the relative rate of hospitalizations is due to people having prior immunity, but it's also due to these treatments that can be very effective if they're started within five days of symptom onset. Um, there's uh, uh, been questions about, well, what about the flu activity? So this one, if all of you can see this slide. So we have the flu seasons, and I'll tell you, these are weeks along the bottom here. And week number one, that's the first week of January. So that's how this goes. Um, so when we look here, uh, the green line is the year that we're in right now. Uh, this one is last year. The red was just before COVID uh, began. And you'll see that as COVID had started to begin uh, becoming more prominent as the respiratory pathogen uh, in the March time period, we see coincidentally that flu started to drop off. Um, 
And um, last year we saw very limited flu transmission. Oh, this is by the clinical laboratories reporting influenza because the clinical laboratories were still able to process flu specimens. Um, it, uh, I'm not able to say so much in the private doctor's offices whether they were taking time to collect two swabs from people for those that didn't have machines that could take one swab and test people. Probably that in, in the healthcare provider offices. If they were going to swab once, they were probably swabbing for COVID last year. Um, but for the laboratories, uh, they were processing the flu specimens. And we saw that we had a little bit of an increase in the flu vaccine uh, from the early uh, in the early fall, and then we. Yeah see that we started to see an increase in uh, the flu cases and we're at about as high as where we've been so far this year. Um, oh, and I do want to point out that, uh, yeah, last year, uh, see how we were flat all along and then it started to go up. That coincidentally was the time when there was a significant relaxation uh, across the state in the various protective measures, specifically the face coverings back then. Because uh, that was quite unique because you see these other years, it's more typical that it's a drop-off then. Okay, test to treat. So, um, uh, test to treat, it's part of what's being described nationally as a program that's available. Um, thanks to the federal government is paying for the outpatient treatment for individuals to be able to access the medicine. And it's called test to treat. So in Frederick County, uh, let's see. Okay, so um, there is, uh, and these slides will be available on our website, and there you can find uh, the telephone number, but you can also, in any search engine, if you were to type in COVID and test to treat, the link will come up to the ASPR ASPR website, and you can put in your zip code, and it will let you know which pharmacies near that zip code offer both testing and treating. So it means that an individual can go to one of those locations, say in Frederick County, we've got three CVSs that also have the minute clinics. You can go, you can get tested there. And then you can, uh, if you test positive, then get the prescribed treatment. Now I do have to say, so while the medicine is available at no cost, there may be a charge for the visit, uh, persons who have insurance, your insurance most likely will cover it, but there is that uh, uh, important uh, reminder for individuals to ask first uh, because the program that the federal government had previously had in effect where they were paying healthcare providers for persons who are uninsured to receive both vaccination and treatment. Uh, that federal program has ended, so it is important to ask. Um, and there are a variety of treatment options. This is a, it's a, uh, a relatively big chart here, but the but I wanted to show that there are various treatment options. Some are the ones where they are an infusion, where they're an intravenous one. And so to access those, it's a little, uh, requires a greater time commitment and are reserved for individuals who have more significant infections and, say, are hospitalized. 
Dr. Weishar in her comments mentioned the remdesivir, which is um, one of the ones that's in an infusion. But the Paxlovid is the pills that are available as an outpatient. That's what's available at the pharmacy at CVS. You can also go to your regular primary care provider, or you could go to an urgent care location, and they can prescribe the medicine, so they can assess your situation, they can prescribe the medicine, but they wouldn't necessarily have it on hand, but that's when you can go to one of the other pharmacies, many of the pharmacies around that have that medicine, in addition to those specific CVS test-to-treat locations. So I want to remind everybody it's about the layers of protection. So we've gotten to the point where we are, partly because of the mutations of the virus, but it's also because of all these protective layers. A significant contribution is the um, uh, our immune systems having some uh, prepared antibodies in other parts of our immune system, uh, whether that's through vaccination or prior infection but it's also these other measures that we have treatment. And again, so if anybody tests positive, begins to have the symptoms, you want to get the treatment within, so you want to start it in less than five days from when your symptoms began. Not when you get the test results, but actually when the symptoms begin, because that's when the medicine will be most effective. But those other layers, so we're back to the, uh, many people are back to wearing face coverings in crowded enclosed areas. Uh, the testing, so if you have symptoms, recommend that you get tested. Uh, the at-home tests, you know, we've talked a lot about that, that the at-home tests are not as uh, sensitive as the laboratory-processed PCR tests. Uh, the at-home tests, most of them are antigen tests, all the free ones that you uh, can get at various locations. And they have a higher false negative rate than the laboratory-processed PCR tests. Uh, so it's uh, not unusual for individuals to have symptoms and test negative on the first test. Then it's recommended that you test at least 48 hours later a second time uh, to see if the test becomes uh, positive at that point. But what I would say is we are, as the... As the numbers of persons who are ill is increasing, we are seeing more people who are reporting that they are getting negative tests, but their symptoms uh, and a recent ex close exposure to somebody with COVID continues to make them wonder, could this be COVID? And when I've talked to people who have then gone to a laboratory or to a healthcare provider's office to get a laboratory process specimen, they have, in fact, had COVID, even though the at-home tests were negative. So that's a reminder, again, that if you're in a situation where you've got symptoms and the timing is right from a recent close exposure to somebody who tested positive, uh, even though the at-home test is negative, especially the first one, then there's a good chance that that was maybe a false negative. Um, and and that, that assessing what does the test result mean changes as the case rate changes. And right now, since we're seeing a relatively high case rate, um, it makes it more likely that the test is a false negative. But it is a reminder that it's out there and to, uh, if you're concerned, to then certainly take the precautions. Uh, so there are free test kits that are still available. The federal government announced that people are now, again, available for the third uh, time uh, to be able to order uh, the free test kits. 
the third round of free test kits. And we also have them at our libraries and other locations. And pharmacies also have them, and you can go to, and this, again, will be on the, our website, but there's a telephone number, and you can type in free masks, CDC, and you'll be able to find out where you can get free masks.